morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9 with me, please. Romans chapter 9. And we're going to read several verses out of this chapter, Romans chapter 9. We're going to start in the middle of it, though, and I'll give you some context uh, in just a minute. But our text verses are going to be uh, from verse 17, following down through verse 24. So follow along as I read Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, we start there in that passage, and that might, uh, as you just read it, that might not make a lot of sense to you uh, just as we read those verses. But let me give you a little bit of context here before we start breaking these verses down and unpacking the truth in them. Uh, Israel is the focus of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. Uh, Paul is, is talking specifically to the nation of Israel. And in the whole context of the book of Romans, it's almost like a parenthetical kind of section where, where Paul has been revealing truth about mankind. In Romans chapter 1, all men, uh, the Gentiles, they're, they're, they're sinful men, and, and, and the wrath of God abides on people. God's revealed Himself, but man has rejected it. That's the Gentiles. He gets to chapter 2, and then he says to the Jews, you sit in judgment over these Gentiles, thinking that you're better than them, but in reality, you're the same. And then he gets to Romans chapter 3 and he says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says that Jews, Gentiles alike, all men are sinners before God. And then he talks about in Romans chapter 4 that salvation is, is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification or being right with God is only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not in your heritage. It's not in where you come from. It's not who you belong to. It's only in faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is the thought process of Paul through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's almost like a parenthetical statement where Paul deals specifically with the Jews and God's dealings with them in the past and God's future dealings with them someday in the future still. Now, in chapter 9, I want you to look at verse 3. Paul says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Paul, this, this illustrates for us where Paul's focus is. It's toward the Jews. In verses 4 and 5, 
we see that, that Paul says that the Jews are a privileged people. He says in verse 4 that unto them pertains the adoption and the glory. The covenants were given to them. The giving of the law was to them. The service of God, the promises of God were to them. Verse 5, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forevermore. Amen. So Paul says that the Jews were a privileged people. They had blessing and privileges that no other people could claim. Ultimately, through Abraham's seed, the Savior of the world would come. He came from the Jewish nation. But they missed the whole promise that God had given to Abraham. And many of the Jews saw it, but the nation as a whole had rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They missed it, and they went about to establish their own righteousness, not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. In chapter 10, in verse 3, he states that. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In chapter 9, in verse 6, all the way down through verse 16, we also see that not only were they a, a, a privileged people, but Israel was a proud people. Notice their heritage in verse 6 and down through verse 8. Not as though the word of God hath taken an effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither be, because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. What he's saying is, just because you are an Israelite doesn't make you an actual child of God spiritually. They had a rich heritage. They looked at themselves as being special. Simply because they were Israelites, they thought they had a right standing with God. And so Paul says in verse 7, speaking of Ishmael, he says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He says Ishmael was of Abraham too, but he wasn't part of God's promise to Abraham. God's plan was fulfilled in Isaac. In the same way, just because you're an Israelite doesn't make you a child of God. He says that in verse 8. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And so he says here, uh, just because you're a, a Hebrew, just because you're an Israelite, doesn't make you a child of God. You only become a child of God through God's plan, which is repentance and faith. But then in verses 9 through 16, they were proud not only of their heritage, they were proud of their works. In verse 9, For this is the word of the promise, At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And he goes on to talk about a couple of different things. But the, the point was that the Jews thought that because what they did, which was trying to keep the law, they were Pharisees, they tried to keep the law of God, that is what set them apart from others, and that is what made them pleasing to God. That's what they thought. Paul says in verse 11, salvation is not of works. Look at it. He says at the end, not of works, but of him that calleth. God's plan and purpose for salvation 
for the souls of men was only in faith, not because of who they were or what they did. It's always been that way. God's plan for the way that he has chosen to save sinful men is God's plan. It's his and his alone because he's God. God's plan to provide salvation was by mercy and grace, not in who we are or what we have done. That was Israel's problem. They were going about to establish their own righteousness, and they had not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And so Paul reiterates his point in verse 16. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, the only reason you have an opportunity to be saved is because of the mercy of God. It's not because of who you are or what you've done. Salvation is through the unmerited favor of God. You know what unmerited means? It means unearned. It means there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to, to, to deserve to receive it. So not only were they a privileged people, but they were very proud people, and they were not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. Now we get to our text verses. And we need to remember that Israel is the main focus here in this chapter. And what Paul does in verse 17 and verse 18 is he starts to use an illustration from Israel's history to prove a point concerning the nation of Israel and their relationship to God. And the first thing that I want to draw out here is in verses 17 and 18, and it's this principle and this thought. God is always just and equitable in His dealings with men. Yeah. Now notice verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. The principle that we're going to draw out here is that God is always just and equitable in His dealings with men. Now, some people take these verses and they make it to mean that God's purpose and design for Pharaoh's existence was only to show His power in him, and then Pharaoh was condemned to die after that. In other words, Pharaoh didn't have a choice in the matter. Pharaoh was was destined for destruction. His only uh, outcome was eternal destruction. He had no choice in the matter. That's how some people take those verses. Because the Bible says, even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. And God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and God will harden whom he wants to harden. That's not what this verse is saying. Now remember, Paul is using an illustration here. He's using an illustration from Israel's history to make a point concerning the nation of Israel and their own relationship with God. And Paul is saying that God is just and equitable in all his dealings with men, but he's still God. He's the ultimate in power. God is the ultimate in authority. He has power over nature. He has power over kings. He has power over rulers. God can destroy both body and soul in hell. However, God is also merciful. The Bible says that God delights in mercy more than in judgment. 
However, that doesn't mean that God is someone that we can trifle with. My friend, God is not uh, the kind of person or the kind of God who's just standing in a corner, just hoping and waiting that you're going to like him and that you're going to love him. God is not begging people to to like him because he needs them for his self-confidence or his security. God is not that way. God is God. He is the ultimate in power and authority, and God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. That's what God is. God is not the kind of of God who who, uh, who is to be trifled with, like, well, I'll get to you when I have a chance, God. Or I'll consider you and your will when I, when I finally get around to it, God. I'm too busy with my own life right now, but someday, God, I'll show you some mercy. That's how people respond. To the command of God. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It's a command of God. And listen, there's a consequence for disobedience to God's command. God is not somebody to be trifled with. He's not somebody to be mocked, and He's not somebody to be, you know, discarded. When I get around to you, God, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Only the mercy of God enables us to have a relationship with God. Now, I want you to notice this phrase in verse 17. Because I'm going to explain what this verse means. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. So God is saying to Pharaoh, for this purpose, and you know the history of the nation of Israel, uh, at least I think you do, that the nation of Israel was in bondage to Egypt, and Pharaoh ruled over them with a rod of iron. They were were persecuted, uh, they were tormented, they were slaves in Egypt. And God raised up Moses, and God said, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, The Bible says that God says to Pharaoh, for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. That phrase, raise thee up, it means to rouse fully, and it has the connotation of of raising from death. Now I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 9. Just keep your place here. And look in Exodus chapter 9 with me. And look in verse 16. We see those same words that we read in Romans chapter 9. In Exodus 9 and verse 16, let's, let's go back just a little bit to verse 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I might smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared through all the earth." So we see the same words here, 
that, that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 for this purpose, I've raised thee up. It means to rouse fully from death. And it carries the meaning of this in reference to Pharaoh. God says, I'm the one who raised you to this position of power and greatness that you're in. I, God, have allowed you to rule where you are. I've sustained it and I've done it for this purpose to show my power in the earth. The truth was that Pharaoh thought he was a God. He thought that he had power over his own world. And like everyone else, he was deceived. Pharaoh deserved to be immediately cut off and face the judgment of God, just like you and I do. But it was only God's mercy and only God's enabling that allowed him to do that. God was long-suffering with Pharaoh so that God's purposes would be fulfilled in demonstrating his power and his might. You understand that? So when he says, for this purpose, I've raised thee up, it's God is saying, I've let you be king, ruler, Pharaoh. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. I want you to look at another phrase. Because some people take this phrase and they say, like the Calvinists, and they say, well, God chooses who's going to be saved and God chooses who's going to be judged. That's not what God does. Salvation is for all men, whosoever will. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God does not determine who he's going to save, and God does not determine by his own uh, choosing who is going to face eternal judgment. Now notice the phrase in verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. On whom he will he hardeneth. That's a hard phrase. That word or that phrase, on whom he will, he hardeneth. It means to harden or to render stubborn. In other words, some people take it like, well, see, God God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. God was the one who made him stubborn. But the question is, does God harden people's heart so that they don't have a choice? I want you to recall with me how on several occasions in the book of Exodus, the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Go back to Exodus chapter 4. And keep that question in mind. Does God harden people's hearts so that they don't have a choice? In Exodus chapter 4, in verse 21, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Look at chapter 7, Exodus chapter 7, in verse 13. The Bible says, And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. In verse 14, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuseth to let the people go. Look at Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10, in verse 20. The Bible says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go. Look at verse 27 of the same chapter. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the people go. Several times, many times, we see the Bible says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But I also want you to recall with me that the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
Go back to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8 and look at verse 15. The Bible says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now, so we have this question. The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but the Bible also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What does that mean? How do we reconcile that? And I think the interpretation is that God did not harden Pharaoh's heart in that Pharaoh didn't have a choice. I think just the opposite is true. I really believe just the opposite is true. That God kept on giving Pharaoh a choice. God kept on confronting Pharaoh with the truth. And Pharaoh was the one who ultimately decided whether or not he was going to submit to God himself. He kept confronting him with this truth so that Pharaoh would be forced to choose. And in that sense, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the point was, Israel themselves were also obstinate with God. God had plainly declared his will, and he continually confronted them with the person of Jesus Christ. Israel as a whole did not receive him. They rejected him. Israel as a whole, by the life that Jesus lived and by the preaching of his ministry, was continually confronted with the fact that he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. Israel as a whole had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And ultimately they rejected him. They did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, but went about to establish their own righteousness. In Romans chapter 10, we read those words, but in verse 2 of Romans 10, Paul says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And they were ignorant of God's righteousness. In Pharaoh's case, God kept coming back saying, let my people go. He kept coming back saying, let my people go. Giving him the choice to submit to God, but he ultimately refused. And that is how God hardened his heart, forcing him to have to make a choice. And here's the application. Israel was the same way. They were confronted with the truth concerning Jesus Christ, but they rejected Him. But that same truth carries over into today in the hearts of men. And what I mean by that is when we're presented with the truth, the truth that we're all sinners before God, the truth that that our, our sin causes us to fall under the judgment of God, the truth that there's only one way of salvation, there's only one way to get to heaven, it's through repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. It's not in religious works, it's not in going to church, it's not in saying some prayers, it's in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is that you are guilty before God. And you're going to face the judgment of God. It is why you need to be saved. Every time we are confronted with that truth, every time we have a choice to make, toward God or away from God. Each time one rejects, they're hardening their heart toward God. And I think of this. I think of people even sitting in this room 
And many people all over the country, I was this way myself before I came to know Jesus Christ. You're here this morning, you're lost. Young person, you know the truth of God. You know you need to be saved. Young person, you have all the information that you need to, choose, to be able to choose to submit yourself to God, but you won't do it. And every time you hear the message of salvation, every time you're confronted with this truth, and you walk away, you're hardening your heart toward God. God is forcing you to have to make a choice. We have a lot of religious people in this world. A lot of churchgoers. In fact, some in this room, you're churchgoers. And maybe at, at some point in time in your life, you have some profession of faith or you call yourself a Christian. Maybe at some point in time in your life, you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus and so on. But there's never been a point in time when you repented of your sin toward God. There's never been a time when you saw yourself as guilty before God, deserving of God's wrath and judgment, and cried out to God for mercy, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm undone. I need your forgiveness. And it's only through Jesus Christ. And I put my faith and trust in Him. Listen, it's not about religion. And you might be religious. But you might be lost. And the truth is being presented. And maybe some sit in this room and they feel conviction in their soul. They feel conviction from the Spirit of God that something isn't right. But you just keep walking away. And you keep walking away. And you keep walking away. You're hardening your heart. And I don't know if we'll get to this today or not, but ultimately the judgment came on Pharaoh because he hardened his heart for the last time. And he was destroyed. And he faced the judgment of God. He's still facing the judgment of God today. What I'm saying is, In the day of judgment, no one will have the right to say, I didn't know, God. You didn't give me enough chances. Anyone experiencing the judgment of God in their life will be doing so as a result of their own choices. So God is always fair, and God is always equitable in His dealings with men. God didn't raise Pharaoh up just to condemn him. God gave him his position. God kept confronting him with the truth. He had an opportunity to submit himself, but he didn't. And it's the same with the nation of Israel. That's what Paul's saying. It's the same for you. You need to accept Jesus Christ. And when God brings the hammer of his judgment down, it will be just and it will be equitable. The Bible says in Proverbs that he that being often reproved hardeneth his neck. Don't do that. If you're here today and you're not saved, the Spirit of God is convicting you of your need. Humble yourself. Submit to the Lord. Because when the day of judgment comes, it'll be fair and it'll be equitable judgment. God gives all the opportunity that we need. The second thought 
in our text in Romans chapter 9 is that God's divine purposes cannot be argued with. God is always equitable and fair in His judgments, in His dealings with men. And secondly, God's divine purposes cannot be argued with. Look in verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay and of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now in verses 19 to 21, we see a couple of things. In verse 19, what we see is that either Paul is anticipating or he's answering some criticism that he's heard. Notice what he says here. He says, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? Who hath resisted his will? Paul posits the objection, Why doth he yet find fault? That was like a belligerent question implying that God was unjust. And the idea was that, okay, well, if, if God raised up Pharaoh for this purpose, and that was what the purpose was, then why does God yet find fault if we don't have a choice in the matter? And they say, well, can God find fault in us then? Who has resisted his will? In verse 20 and 21, Paul simply uses the illustration of a potter. And he says, basically, what folly is it for a piece of pottery to make charges against its maker? And the unbelieving critic was doing the same thing. The potter, Paul's point was the potter has the prerogative to form his creation for whatever purpose he chooses. But so does God. You know, a potter's got his lump of clay, and the potter's the one fashioning it, and the potter's making it however he wants to make it. And how foolish for the clay to look up at the potter and say, why have you made me this way? That's foolish. No one would even believe that. But he says, how much more God, who is our creator? How foolish for us to say to him and make charges and accusations against him. In verses 22 to 24, Paul gets to the application of the whole thing. And notice what he says in verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Israel may have been God's chosen people, but down through the ages they rebelled against God. They hardened their hearts against God, and God therefore had no choice but to direct His wrath against them. And so Paul poses this stinging question to his Jewish objectors. He says, what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? That phrase, fitted to destruction, it means to complete thoroughly. It means to run its course. It's in a tense that suggests that those vessels themselves choose what they end up becoming. And that's what God did with Pharaoh. God allowed him to live, and God allowed things to run their course. 
And God allowed the ultimate rebellion of Pharaoh to run its natural course in destruction. With Israel, God made Israel a vessel for his purpose, yet Israel turned against their maker. And through their own hardness of heart, they had transformed themselves into vessels of destruction. That's what Paul's trying to say here. In other words, it was your own choice. And contrary to that, God chose to make known the riches of His glory on the Gentiles to whom the gospel had gone. And so the point is, Paul says, you rebelled against God. You had all this opportunity. God gave it all to you, but you chose where you're going to go. And so the gospel has now gone to the Gentiles, and God has chosen to show the riches of His glory and the riches of His grace in the Gentiles. So God turned His mercy to the Gentiles... Not because they were more righteous than the Jews. They too were guilty because all have sinned. But he did that because Israel rejected. And yet God, in his perfect plan, has chosen to be merciful unto all. So, what's the conclusion? What's the application? When we boil all of this down and we apply it to you and me today, When the judgment of God comes, it's only because sinners refuse to repent of their sin and turn to the Lord for salvation. In other words, we don't have to experience the judgment of God. If people perish, it's because of their choice. And we know this because 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But even if people perish, even if people experience the judgment of God, God gets glory out of it either way. The unrepentant sinner, God is glorified because justice is done. Sin is being recompensed. Their sin is judged in wrath. God got glory out of Pharaoh too. Exodus chapter 14 tells us that. God said, I raised you up for this purpose, to show my power, to show my glory. And ultimately, Pharaoh refused to hearken to the Lord, and he experienced judgment. And the Bible says that God got glory out of him. Exodus chapter 14, in verse 17, says this, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. If someone dies in their sin and they experience the judgment of God, God still gets glory out of it. Not because He delights in judgment. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if they do, it's by their own choice, but God still gets glory because sin is being recompensed. The repentant sinner, you repent of your sin, you trust in Christ, God gets glory out of that. God is glorified in that He extended mercy and grace, and you believed it, and God saved your soul. My point is this. God does not choose who will be saved and who will be lost, but He does choose how a person 
comes to know righteousness with God. And our job is to submit to Him. Israel was without a leg to stand on. They didn't have any argument against God. They were guilty because they wouldn't submit to God's plan of redemption by grace through faith. And the same truth holds true today. If you're here today and you end up dying in your sin, it's not because you didn't have a choice. It's because you hardened your heart against the truth of God. And the question right now, friend, is what are you trusting in to get yourself to heaven? Because I would dare say that everybody in this room would say, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to experience the judgment of God. I want to go to heaven. What are you trusting in to get yourself there? Well, you can't get yourself there. The question really is, have you submitted yourself to God? At the end of chapter 9, Paul says these words in verse 31, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Paul says the nation of Israel, they've not attained the thing that they were trying to attain. Why did they not attain that? Because they sought it not by faith. They tried to do it themselves. So the question is, number one, are you saved? Do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven? Number two, if you're here today and you don't know that for sure, but you think, well, I'm going to go to heaven. What makes you think that? What are you trusting in to get yourself to heaven? And I would say there's a third application. Maybe there's somebody here today. You've heard the gospel so many times. God has even convicted your heart. But you've walked away. And now maybe you're at the point where it just doesn't even really affect you anymore. Your eyes are darkened, just like the nation of Israel. That is a dangerous place to be, my friend. God is speaking to you. You need to respond. Submit yourself to Him. Humble yourself to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that You'd use the Word of God today in the hearts of men and women. I don't know people's hearts. I can't see inside of them. But, Lord, I do know that You're calling. I do know that people can harden their hearts. They're confronted with truth and they keep walking away. They just won't yield to God. And pretty soon, their heart is so hardened, it's calloused, that it doesn't affect them anymore. Pharaoh hardened his heart for the last time. And he experienced the judgment of God. And Lord, I pray for, for anyone here today in that same situation. You're calling, you're drawing, but they're resisting. There's, there's a fight going on inside of their soul even now. Lord, I pray that they'd not harden their heart against you. And Lord, for the saint of God, those here today who know you, who love you, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to again be thankful for the mercy of God that was shown in our life. Lord, how you didn't give up on us and you kept prodding, drawing us to yourself and then Finally, we submit and yield to the Lord. And what a, what a great change 
you make in the life of those who trust in you. Lord, help us to be thankful and rejoice in our salvation. Be thankful for the mercy of God. In Jesus' name, amen.